Hey, and I hope you'll, you'll take notes, but you don't have to kill yourself taking notes because if you want my PowerPoint slides and my notes, uh, I'll put up an email at the end where you can uh, get those. Well, when we talk about this topic of creation versus evolution, we're not talking about faith versus science, but we're talking about science versus science. Because in recent decades, there have been more and more research and discoveries that have caused many in the scientific community to question evolution for scientific reasons. Back in the early 2000s, there was a seven-part series uh, on PBS on evolution, and it ended with the statement, all reputable scientists agree with evolution. And that statement ticked a lot of scientists off, so much so that there were 100 scientists that took out a two-page ad in the Weekly Standard because they wanted to go on public record as disagreeing with evolution for scientific reasons. And it wasn't as if these scientists uh, had their PhD from some online JUCO or something, but these were uh, scientists who had their doctorates from places like Cambridge, Stanford, Cornell, Yale, Rutgers, Chicago, Princeton, Purdue, Duke, Temple, Berkeley, and many others. They included professors from places like Yale Graduate School, MIT, Rice, Emory, George Mason, and many others. And they wanted to go on public record as disagreeing with evolution for scientific reasons. Science Digest says this. Scientists who utterly reject evolution may be one of our fastest growing controversial minorities. Many of the scientists supporting this position hold impressive credentials in science. If you want to take a deeper dive into this topic, uh, I get a lot of the material we'll look at today from Lee Strobel's book, The Case for a Creator. There's a student edition at the bookstore. Uh, but in this book, Lee Strobel shares his story, and he talks about how as a freshman in high school, he remembers the day in his biology high school class, the day that he embraced evolution. But it also happened to be the very same day and same time that he embraced atheism. Because for him, like many, it was a package deal. Well, Lee went on to become uh, an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And someone challenged Lee to look at evolution based on the scientific data. He had never done that before. He had just believed it. And so a lot of this book is kind of his investigation. He interviews a lot of different scientists. Uh, and he was shocked at how much evidence points to a creator. And he was also shocked at the number in the scientific community uh, that question evolution for scientific reasons. And so if, you're, if you find yourself kind of like Lee Strobel, evolution is all you've ever heard, and therefore, it's all you've ever believed. I'm glad you're here to hear the other side of the argument. For those of us who follow Christ, the Bible commands us, always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so hopefully you'll walk away with some equipping that will help you walk out uh, and live out this verse. 
And as we talk about creation versus evolution, I want to encourage you not to land in the mushy middle. And when I refer to the mushy middle, I'm referring to theistic evolution. The theistic evolution is that the idea that God directs the evolutionary process. And the thinking can go like this. That, man, there's so much complexity in life that, man, there must have been an intelligent designer involved. But, man, there's so many smart scientists that tell me evolution is fact. So that must be true. So why don't we just say that God used evolution to create everything and we can all be happy? It sounds good on the surface, but the problem with theistic evolution is it doesn't fit with the evolutionary model, nor does it fit with the Bible. The evolutionary model says this, everything is a product of uncaring, unguided, unplanned, random forces of nature. So if you inject a, an intelligent designer into this, you undercut the whole foundation of the evolutionary model. It also doesn't agree with the Bible. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Well, before we um, you know, jump into the meat of our discussion today, I want to define a couple of important terms, and one is microevolution. Microevolution is evolution within a species. It's also known as adaptation. God has given species the ability to adapt to their environment. This is exactly what Charles Darwin observed when he took his famous voyage to the Galapagos Islands. On certain islands, he noticed that the finches had short, stubby beaks. On other islands, he noticed that these finches had long, slender beaks. Depending on what they had to eat, they adapted to their environment. That's microevolution. Everybody agrees with microevolution. It's something we can observe. That's what Charles Darwin observed, but then he made the huge jump. He said, if we can have a small amount of change over a short period of time, then we must be able to have a huge amount of change over a huge amount of time. And that's where he postulated macroevolution, which is evolution from one species to another. And it's macroevolution that more and more in the scientific community are questioning for scientific reasons because the data doesn't support it. And it's important to note the distinction because many times an evolutionist will point to microevolution, something everybody agrees with, to try to prove macroevolution. It's a very effective debate technique. And I, I saw it a lot when I was in, in college in, in my pre-med classes, either in the textbook uh, or from the professor. They would say things like, hey, you see this moth that adapts to its environment, it evolves, it changes color so it can survive? Do you see this bacteria that evolves and becomes resistant to antibiotics? Evolution is true. How could you possibly argue against it? You probably believe in a flat earth too, don't you? You know, that's how the argument goes. It's a very effective debate technique, but there's a world of difference between microevolution and macroevolution. What do the best lies always have a lot of? Truth. The best lies always have a lot of truth. Evolution is true 
on a micro sense. But it's the macro evolution that doesn't have the support of the evidence. Well, hey, as we think about this topic, it's important for us to uh, recognize nobody can, nobody can prove evolution. Nobody can prove creation. We have to look at the evidence and draw conclusions. Hey, before we jump in, I want you to discuss this question with the person next to you. Why does it matter where somebody lands on this discussion about creation or evolution? Why is it a big deal where somebody lands about where are we originated through creation or through evolution? Turn to the person next to you and discuss that, and I'll wrap this up in a second. Hey, there, there are a lot of reasons that we could say that why this is important, but one is if a person embraces evolution and they doubt question and they think the first three chapters of the Bible are off or wrong, they have a reason to doubt everything else that's in the Bible. In the same way, if somebody accepts the first three chapters of the Bible, the rest of the Bible is easy to believe. That there is a God who spoke the world into existence, the rest of the Bible is easy to believe. And so where a person begins with their worldview makes a massive difference, whether they land on creation or evolution. Well, we're going to look at three areas of science that point strongly to a creator. And the first area is physics. Who set the dials? Carl Sagan said this in the 1970s. There's nothing unusual about Earth. It's an average, unassuming rock that's spinning mindlessly around an unremarkable star in a run-of-the-mill galaxy. He's not very easily impressed. Carl Sagan's point was, there's nothing special about Earth that makes life possible here because life is going to find a way anywhere. And so based on this perspective... Carl Sagan predicted that there were a million advanced civilizations in our galaxy alone. A million advanced civilizations, extraterrestrials. There was a movie that came out in the 1970s that reflected this idea. You may remember the barroom scene of Star Wars. Man, life is going to find a way. And man, life is going to happen. There's nothing special about Earth. Well, fast forward 40 to 50 years. I'm going to put up Another quote from John O'Keefe, who's a NASA research scientist. He's known as the godfather of astrogeology. And look what he says. Only one planet in the universe is likely to bear intelligent life. He's not saying there isn't intelligent life is out there. But what he is saying is, based on what we've learned in the last four to five decades, life doesn't just happen. Life is actually very fragile. And I'm betting we're the only ones. Because the more we've learned um, about the universe, about our solar system, about our galaxy, is that there are a number of physical constants that have to be set just right for life to exist. Life doesn't just happen. Patrick Glenn, a professor of physics at Georgetown, said this, all of the seemingly arbitrarily and unrelated constants in physics have one strange thing in common. These are precisely the settings that you have to have if you want the universe 
to produce life. Think about it. We're talking about there's either an intelligent designer, a creator God, or random forces of nature set the dials. Someone had to set the dials for life to exist. Well, he, here he says precise settings. Let's look at a couple of, of examples. If we were going to take the possible settings for gravity in the universe, we would have to, uh, and, and we were going to have one inch increments of the, all of the possible settings from the you know, zero gravity of empty space to the unimaginable force of gravity in a black hole. If we put all those possible settings on a dial that were separated by one inch increments, this dial would have to be the size of our solar system. That's how many possible settings there are for, the, the, for gravity in the universe. Did you know that the, the setting has been put at the one place where gravity, the, the setting of gravity is, is set, where life can exist? If you move that huge dial one inch to the right, that's the size of the solar system, man, life as we know it doesn't exist. If you move that huge dial one inch to the left, life as we know it doesn't exist. Dr. Robert Collins said this, of all the possible settings on the dial, it happens to be situated in the exact right fraction of an inch to make our universe capable of sustaining life. Think about that. It's either random forces of nature setting the dial or a creator God. Well, that's just uh, one example. Let's look at another. Atoms uh, are the building blocks of life. If the strong nuclear force in an atom was decreased by only one part in 10,000 billion, 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 just that little, then all we have in the universe is hydrogen and life isn't possible. Just that little. Listen to what Harvard astronomy professor Owen Gingrich says. A common sense and satisfying interpretation of our world suggests the designing hand of a super intelligence. He says it's common sense. If you're walking through the woods and you happen up on a laptop, you don't think, I wonder what random force of nature put this thing together. You think, man, I wonder who designed this. You assume there was design because precision requires design and intelligence. And the more that we have learned about our galaxy and the universe, the more we recognize that. It's common sense. These are only two settings that if we just put those two together, the laws of probability would be zero. That random forces of nature could have set the dials. There are over 30 such settings that we have identified at this point that have been set. The universe from all that we have observed is a very harsh place and uninhabitable for humans. It is only Earth that has the specifics that allow for life. If the Earth were a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller, 5% either direction, life as we know it couldn't exist. If the earth was just a little bit closer to the sun, a little bit farther away, life as we know it wouldn't exist. 
Did you know that we have a magnetic field around the Earth that most planets don't have that protects us from the sun's radiation? Our sister planet, Venus, doesn't have this. Life isn't possible because of the radiation. Mars does have a magnetic field, but it's 100 times weaker than ours. Life isn't possible because of the radiation on Mars. Did you know that the Earth is situated just the right distance in our galaxy from the center and also situated just the right distance from the outer ring to give us a stable orbit. If we had the orbit of Venus, life would not be possible. Life, it turns out, is incredibly delicate. Earth's location, its size, its composition, its structures, its atmosphere, its temperatures, its internal dynamics, its many intricate cycles, the carbon cycle, oxygen cycle, nitrogen cycle, sodium cycle, all testify to the degree to which our planet is exquisitely and precisely designed. Did you know that we have a four-part defense system against comets and asteroids? You know, if you, if you look at the surface of most planets or moon, they're cratered out. Because, and they're just getting hammered all the time, comets, asteroids. Well, our first line of defense against comets and asteroids is Jupiter. Because it's so huge, the gravitational pull that many of the asteroids or comets that would hit the Earth get sucked into the orbit of Jupiter. Jupiter has 79 moons. Most of those are expected to have been comets that were headed towards the Earth that got sucked into its gravitational pull. Well, if it gets past Jupiter, this is the uh, surface of Mars. Do you notice it's craters within craters? Mars is cratered out. But because it's close to the Earth, many of the asteroids that would hit the Earth or comets get sucked into Mars' atmosphere. The largest crater uh, on Mars is 1,400 miles wide. That's about the distance from the east coast to the west coast of the U.S. That could do some damage. Well, if it gets past that, the moon, this is the surface of the moon. Again, craters within craters. Why is it that all these places have craters, but the earth doesn't? The largest crater on the moon is almost 1,600 miles wide. Well, if it gets past the moon, the Earth has a very strong atmosphere, again, that most planets do not have, that would burn up the comet. If it gets past that, there's a 70% chance it's going to land in the ocean. Life doesn't just happen. The exquisite order displayed by our scientific understanding of the physical world calls for the divine. This MIT professor says it doesn't just suggest the divine, but she says it calls for the divine. Hey, turn to the person next to you and discuss this. How would these examples, these areas of physics, call for the divine? Why would she say that? That it doesn't just suggest the divine, the divine, but it calls for the divine. Go ahead and discuss that and I'll wrap this up. You know, as we think about this, this evidence, uh, Dr. Patrick Lynn, he was, uh, he did his undergraduate, got his doctorate from Harvard, He's a professor of physics at Georgetown. He was a committed atheist and evolutionist. But when he started uncovering this evidence, 
he actually concluded that it took more faith to believe in evolution that random forces of nature could have put this together, put all these precise settings, than to believe that there is a, a God who is the designer. Don't ever let an atheist tell you that they don't have faith. Because a lot of atheists will say, you know, I just don't have faith. Everybody has faith in something. Patrick Glenn concluded it took more faith to be an atheist. And the laws of probability would say that random forces of nature putting together 30 such precise settings to make life possible is again essentially zero. Well, as we, the more we learn about the world around us, about the heavens and the earth, the more we're reminded of what Psalm 19.1 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The more we discover, the more incredible we realize how God is because He spoke this into existence. And we uncover just man, how specific um, this creation had to be. Well, the second area of science we want to look at is paleontology, the fossil record. The missing links are still missing. I was on a flight several years ago. Um, I started a conversation with the guy next to me, and we started talking about his spiritual life, and he said, man, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm an atheist. And I was like, really? Man, how'd that happen? He said, well, I started believing in evolution. And I was like, man, I've always had a question, and I love to ask guys that man, believe in evolution, maybe you can help me out. If evolution is true, and it's happening one mutation at a time, and it's continual, and we have ape-like creatures now, and we have humans now, and evolutionists say that process took about two million years to go from an ape-like creature to a human, where are all the in-between intermediate links that we should be able to look at today and see? All the links in between. Where's that ape-like creature that's a million years into evolving into a human and everything in between? And he was like, man, that's a good question. I don't know. And, you know, it's been interesting. As I've asked, uh, you know, some of my evolutionist buddies that question, I've really never gotten a, a good answer. One answer I have gotten is it happens so slow you can't see it which really didn't make much sense to me either. But if it does to you, you can come up afterwards and, and tell me. So the, the idea is this, that everything started as a single cell organism, and then it eventually evolved into a fish, into an amphibian. A cold-blooded amphibian then evolved into a warm-blooded mammal. But then something interesting happened. Because we have some mammals in the water. And so apparently, what are some of the mammals we have in the ocean? Whale, dolphin. So apparently, so the theory is that a cattle-like creature evolved back into the water. Um, and so my question is, man, we have lots of cattle-like creatures. We have lots of whales. If evolution is happening one mutation at a time, there should be more intermediate links. We have lots of cattle-like creatures, lots of whales. Where are the millions of intermediate links that we should be seeing? 
If evolution is true, we should be able to observe it. There should be more intermediates than there are distinct species themselves. Well, um, you know, a lot of evolutionists will say, well, we can't see it now, but that's why we need the fossil record, because that's where we'll be able to find the intermediate links. Listen to what Charles Darwin said about the fossil record. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? It is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. You, know, you have to give Charles Darwin credit for being intellectually honest. He says it's a theory, and he says there's the, the biggest, gravest objection that can be urged against it is the fact that the intermediates we should be finding, they're not there. And he says they should be packed full. It's not just one here or one there. It should be packed full of intermediate links. Well, as we, as we think about this idea, you know, Charles Darwin was hopeful that future discoveries in the fossil record would vindicate his theory. And Charles Darwin said that he predicted what we would find in the fossil record is something called Darwin's tree. If we put the Earth's history on a football field and we started on one gold line when it began and present day was the other gold line, Darwin said we should find something called Darwin's tree where life started off simply and as it progressed in time, it became more and more complex until we see the complexity of life that we have today. But instead of finding Darwin's tree in the fossil record, we have something that's called the Cambrian explosion. When almost all animal and plant phyla exploded onto the scene. If you condense the Earth's history into a 24-hour period, the Cambrian explosion is a mere 60 seconds. Life didn't slowly evolve. It exploded onto the scene. If we had nothing but the Bible to go on, what would we expect to find in the fossil record? A slow, continual evolution or life exploding? Of course, life exploding, and that's exactly what we see. Well, 150 years after Darwin, listen to what Harvard professor atheist and evolutionist. He's a professor, was a professor of paleontology at Harvard. Look what he says. The fossil record with its abrupt transitions offer no support for gradual change. All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. You know, he... Uh, Professor Gould um, you know, made a statement that, man, just being honest, that, hey, the evidence isn't there, but most other, other scientists aren't willing to give up the fossil record. So they're not going to agree with this statement. And so on a regular basis, they will come up with different missing links that, hey, man, here's a missing link. Here's a missing link you know, for human evolution or another intermediate. But before we look at a, a few of these missing link candidates, it's important to note a, a point that former law professor at UC Berkeley, uh, Philip Johnson, he wrote a book called Darwin on Trial. And he looked at the evidence from a, from a lawyer's perspective, but he makes an important point. He says a confirming example or two for ancestor status is not enough to save a theory 
that claims a worldwide history of continual evolutionary transformation. His point is the fact that we're even debating about one or two is an indictment against a theory that says it should be packed full. So the fact that we're even arguing about one or two uh, shows that the theory doesn't have the evidence to support it. Well, here are a few missing link candidates. Archaeopteryx. It was supposedly the missing link between uh, reptiles and birds, and it was promoted as such for decades, you know, in textbooks and all, but today the scientific community admits that it's an extinct bird and not a missing link. Piltdown Man stood in a museum in London for 40 years as an example of human evolution. And then it was discovered that it was a fraud. Somebody had mixed gorilla bones, chimp bones, and human bones all in the, in the same skeleton. There was a tooth found in Nebraska, and they created a, a whole prehistoric man out of this tooth. This is actual New York Times article, but then later it was discovered that it was a pig's tooth. Whoops. Uh, these are the remains that were found in Indonesia. Um, and you'll notice that there are no facial bones that were discovered. So whatever this creature is going to look like, it's going to be 100% determined by the artist's discretion. So what does he look like? He looks, you know, kind of apish, kind of humanish. Well, a team of 19 evolutionists flew to Indonesia and examined the, this find, and they determined this was, these were the remains of a human and not a missing link. The most famous missing link is Lucy. Uh, Dr. Johansson discovered Lucy in 1974, and about 40% of the skeleton was intact, which is a pretty incredible find. Lucy had the brains size of a gorilla, about one-fourth the size of humans, had the jaw and teeth of a gorilla. And so originally, Lucy was categorized as an extinct ape. But then, Dr. Johansson discovered a knee joint that he said perhaps this could have given Lucy the ability to walk upright. And that's when Lucy went from an extinct ape to the poster child of human evolution. Because Johansson said, perhaps it could have given her the ability to walk upright. But what they don't say is that Lucy also had the hips of a chimp, which are tilted forward. A chimpanzee can walk on its feet for short periods of time now. And so the fact that it could have given Lucy the ability to walk upright was really nothing out of the ordinary. Dr. Richard Leakey is probably the most famous paleontologist uh, in history. He examined Lucy and he said that two or perhaps three species have been wrongly combined in Lucy. And yet, Lucy, this is supposed to prove that we came from apes. And listen to what this evolutionary scientist says. The only certainty in this data poor, you don't have much to work on, imagination rich, you gotta fill in a lot of gaps with what you think, is that there are plenty of surprises left to come. Data poor, 
imagination rich. Well, these, this is an example of that. These different faces all had the same facial structure of Lucy. But depending on what the artist wants to make uh, it look like, you can make it look like a chimp, you can make it look like Planet of the Apes. Second from the end, looks like she's got the frat swoop going, looking very human. Again, data poor, imagination rich. The fossil record is about as discontinuous as it was when Darwin was writing The Origin. The intermediates have remained as elusive as ever, and their absence remains a century later one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil record. Did you see that? What's one of the most striking characteristics of the fossil records? The absence of intermediate links. What we can't observe, what we should expect to observe, are intermediate links, if evolution is true, today in real time. What we can't, they tell us we need to look in the fossil record. The fossil record also shows that there are not intermediate links. Because remember what Darwin said about the fossil record? Why then is not every formation and every stratum full of intermediate links? It is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Well, not only does the fossil record not show, not give evidence for the missing links to support evolution, but there's also been some fascinating study with DNA that also shows the same thing, a lack of non-existence of the intermediate links. Check this study out. It was done, it was published only about three or four years ago. Why did the overwhelming majority of species in existence today emerge at about the same time? They did a study of over 100,000 species, DNA study, and what they found is, hey, there wasn't one evolving into the next, but they all came into existence at about the same time. Once again, that's exactly what the fossil record shows with the Cambrian explosion, um, and it's also what the Bible says happened. Check out what the lead researcher says uh, about his findings. This conclusion is very surprising, and I fought against it as hard as I could. Why would a lead researcher fight, fight against the results of his own research? Because it went against everything he believed related to finding intermediates to support evolution. Well, check out what he says. The absence of in-between species is something that also perplexed Darwin. So here we have a geneticist who says there aren't intermediate species found with this DNA research. And guess what? Darwin was also perplexed that there weren't intermediates found in the fossil record. They both are indictments against evolution and for creation. Hey, want you guys to discuss this question. If somebody told you that the fossil record supports evolution, what would you say? Go ahead and discuss that, and I'll wrap this up in a second. Okay, our last area of science we're going to look at is genetics. Who wrote the program? One of the challenges for evolutionists is how do you go from, because you know the, the, the story is, hey, we all started off as a single-cell organism. As if that's a simple thing. Oh, you know, just 
you know, appeared out of nowhere. But how do you go from non-life to life? Because it seems simple. Well, hey, a single-celled organism, you know, that could probably just, you know, you could you know, find that in someone's coffee. But how is that created? How do you go from non-life to life? Well, let's see the jump somebody has to make to believe random forces of nature could put a single-celled organism together. First, you start with amino acids. Hundreds of amino acids have to be put in just the right sequence, the bond angles at just the right angle to form a functioning protein. If you get one out of sequence, one angle that's not quite right, it doesn't work. The laws of probability that random forces of nature could put together amino acids to form one protein would be laughable. But for the sake of argument, let's give it to them, okay? So now you end up with one protein. Well, now you have to say, how do random forces of nature put together 100 million proteins to form a cell? 100 million proteins in just the right order, sequence, all of that. You get one out, man, it's not going to work. Again, the laws of probability would make that laughable. But for the sake of argument, let's say, let's give it to them. It would be equivalent to saying that a tornado, a random force of nature, hits an electronic factory and out pops an iPhone. You know, we would never believe that in a million years. Well, this is, and it's not just because the theory isn't that just one single cell organism, but it was millions that appeared at once all over. So it's millions of tornadoes hitting millions of electronic factories producing millions of laptops. For the sake of argument, let's give it to them. Okay? Because here's the problem. Just because you have a laptop that has all the hardware, will that laptop, will that laptop work? No. You need software to tell the, the laptop what to do. Well, the cell is the same way. It must have software, a program that is written that tells it what to do. And that has been what has been incredible about DNA. DNA is that program. The DNA molecule carries the genetic information necessary for the organization and functioning of most living cells and controls the inheritance of characteristics that each of, how many, how many uh, cells in the human body? Any guesses? A trillion. It's 40 trillion, they tell us. 40 trillion. And it's the DNA in each of those cells that is telling the cell how to make protein, for what purpose to make protein, where to ship the protein in the body. A cell is a highly technical manufacturing and shipping factory. Bill Gates says this about DNA. It is like a software program, only much more complex than anything we have devised. You know, that's actually a huge understatement. I'm going to tell you guys something about, pro, or about DNA that you're not going to believe. You guys ready for it? If you had just a teaspoon of DNA, just that little, there would be enough memory storage for the genetic information of every organism that has ever existed. Every butterfly, 
every dinosaur, every you know, golden doodle, every organism that has ever existed. And you still want to have enough room for every book that's ever been written. That's how much memory storage in that little of DNA. It's mind-blowing. So to believe that random forces of nature put that together, no wonder Patrick Lynn determined, man, it took more faith to be an atheist. If you were walking down the beach and you saw ripples in the sand, you would conclude that random forces of nature created this. Waves blowing up on the beach because random forces of nature create patterns. But if you kept walking down the beach and you saw Clay Loves Allison written in the sand, you would not conclude that random forces of nature created this. You would conclude that Clay wrote this. Or if Allison was, you know, feeling insecure, she wrote this. I know he loves me. But you would not in a million years try to convince anybody that random forces of nature created this because random forces of nature don't create information. Did you know that there is enough information in one cell to fill millions of pages with text. Millions and millions of pages. And that's the, that's the information that is in a cell. And it's not Clay Loves Allison kind of information, but it's highly technical engineering kind of information. And so to believe that random forces of nature created that, again, takes a ton of faith. To common sense, it does indeed appear absurd to propose that chance could have thrown together devices of such complexity. Again, this is from an atheist and evolutionist. It appears absurd. Dr. Anthony Flew was an evolutionist and an atheist. Uh, he, worked, he was a professor at Reading University in England. And he wasn't just a, a, an atheist, but he was a proponent of atheism. He was the Richard Dawkins of his day. He debated atheism. He actually debated C.S. Lewis back in the day. And so the scientific community was shocked when he came out with this book, There Is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. What was it that changed his mind? It was DNA. What I think the DNA material has done is show that intelligence must have been involved. You know, as we you know, think about this evidence, you know, Darwin's theory, not only is it wrong and lacks evidence, but Darwin's theory is also dangerous and racist. This is Charles Darwin's full title of his book, The Origin of Species, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Darwin's theory predicted that different races, or said that different races of people came from different species of ape-like creatures. And some races were more highly evolved than others. And of course, his race was the most highly evolved, he said. Um, you know, Hitler used this rationale to try to extinguish a group of people that he said was not the, a favored race and to promote his own race. He said he was helping evolution out, survival of the fittest. 
And then evolution was also the foundation of Mao, Stalin, um, you know, Hitler. And so it's not just, you know, wrong and lacks the evidence, but in history, it's proven, man, to, to be, you know, an incredibly, you know, dangerous theory as well. Well, not a, again, not only do we see the evidence lacking in the fossil record, but that DNA evidence I referred to earlier, check out what the, the research says. New research has concluded that all humans are descendants of just one couple who lived 200,000 years ago. The research says between 100 and, 100 and 200,000. But think about this. We can now tell from DNA that what Darwin taught that, hey, there's different you know, strands from different ape-like creatures created the different races. The Bible says we all came from one couple. Guess what? In 2018, this research was published. It says we can tell from our DNA that every human came from the same couple, which is incredible to think about. There's an exactness of DNA. There's one race, the human race. There's different ethnicities. There's different people groups. But every person is related. Well, hey, I'm going to wrap us up um, with a couple of uh, thoughts for us to consider. Again, this was, before I get to those, this was the head researcher. This conclusion was very surprising. I fought against it as hard as I could. That, you know, every person has come from just one couple. Colossians 1.16 says this, All things were created by Him and for Him. You were created for a relationship with God. And until we find that relationship with God, we're not going to have the purpose, the satisfaction, the significance that He desires for us to have. Because we were made for Him. And that was the whole reason that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we could through Him, have a relationship with God. And so as we wrap up and think about application, again, I want you to remember you were created for God and for His purposes. And secondly, I want to encourage you to share this workshop with someone you know needs to hear it. Because, you know, as, as we've seen, there's a lot of fake news out there related to creation and evolution. And if you're interested in getting the... Uh, my notes in this PowerPoint, uh, you can email Tanner and he'll send that to you. Hey, let me pray for us. Lord, we just want to praise you that you are the creator. And Lord, it's incredible to think about, Lord, just the amazing power you had to speak the world into existence. And the more we discover, the more amazing we realize you are. And Lord, we just thank you that you desire to have a relationship with us through Christ. And I just pray that, Lord, we could walk in this truth as we leave here. In Christ's name, amen.